Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. Good morning, honey, you old gloomy say. Good morning, honey, thought we said goodbye last night. Are you going to tell me why you're here? I can't believe I've been blind for so long. What in heaven's name are you on about? You know exactly what I'm talking about, commie spy. What? You... You've lost your mind. Don't play games with me. Are you really going to pretend you're not a commie sympathizer? Fine. Maybe I find some of their ideas appealing. That doesn't make me some sort of secret agent. I heard you speaking Russian on the phone. So knowing in language is a crime. I don't know many Russians in Australia. How can you accuse me like this? For Christ's sake, we have a son together. And what a perfect way to keep me around, to keep tabs on me. Let's pretend for a moment I'm a Russian spy. Why would I need to keep tabs on a sailor? Because you know what I'm doing when I'm not sailing, don't you? Gambling? Drinking? Other women? How the hell should I know? I'm sick and tired of your lies! <coughs> Wonderful. Robin's awake. Where are you going? <laughs> As if I'd tell you. So you're not even going to see your son. Or maybe he's spying for the Reds, too. Enjoy your time with him. You're not going to be free to see him much longer. Now you're threatening me. Just a reminder. You're going to get what's coming to you. So will we all. Another pasty for the road? Or are you worried I'll poison it? Not even you would stoop that low. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to our final episode on the Summerton Man. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. On December 1st, 1948, 
An unknown man's body was found on Somerton Beach in Australia. A man whose identity has remained one of Australia's greatest mysteries. The Somerton man had all identifying labels removed from his clothing. And from the clothing found a month later in his suitcase at the Adelaide train station. He was initially identified as a man named E.C. Johnson. I think the papers got the news about my death wrong. I've got my identification right here. Mm, you're Johnson? That's right. And last I checked, I didn't die on Somerton Beach. As the police tried to identify the victim, Coroner Dwyer performed an autopsy and found some disturbing results. His stomach is filled with blood. Do you think he was poisoned? Quite possibly. Let's take a tissue sample. Tests for ordinary poison came up negative, but Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks, a consultant on the case, theorized that the Somerton man was poisoned by digitalis or strophanthin, two poisons that couldn't be detected in an autopsy. Soviet spies knew all about poisons like digitalis and strophanthin. In the 1930s and 40s, Soviet spies used these rare poisons to murder critics of the Soviet Union. Digitalis and strophanthin were used to treat heart disease. They could be readily obtained from a chemist without a prescription. If a Soviet sleeper agent in Australia wanted to kill the Somerton man, the necessary poisons would have been easily accessible. And in 1948, American codebreakers found such extensive evidence of Soviet spies in Australia that they stopped sharing classified information. It would make sense if the Somerton man was poisoned by a Soviet spy, since there was evidence that he was an American spy. He had American juicy fruit gum in his pocket, an American comb, and a coat with an American feather stitch. But aside from these clues that the Somerton man was an American, the police had no leads as to his true identity. Their big break came when John Cleland, a professor of pathology, was brought on to help with the case. What are you looking for? Just making sure we didn't miss anything. And you think there's something new inside his pants? I'm just being thorough. There's something inside his fob pocket. A scrap of paper? What does it say? Tamam should. Tamam should? What does that mean? Haven't the foggiest. A reporter informed the detectives that Tamam should were the final two words of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. The Rubaiyat was a selection of 11th century poems that had been loosely translated by Edward Fitzgerald. In the 1940s, the book was very popular in Australia. The police conducted a nationwide search to find the copy of the Rubaiyat that the Somerton man's scrap of paper had been ripped from. Well, eventually, a man under the pseudonym Ronald Francis turned in a copy of the Rubaiyat he had found in his car near Somerton Beach around the time of the Somerton man's murder. In the back of the book, detectives found a cryptic code of capitalized letters. They sent this code to Australia's top codebreakers in the Army and the Navy, but no one was able to crack it. The book also contained the phone number of a woman who went by the pseudonym Justin. She told detectives that she had given her copy of the Rubaiyat to a friend named Alfred Boxel. But just like E.C. Johnson, Alfred Boxel turned out to be alive and well. He still had the copy of the Rubaiyat that Justin had given him. Who was this mysterious woman? What was she hiding from the police? We're about to find out. The woman, who for decades was known only by her pseudonym, Justin, was born Jessie Harkness in the suburb of Mentone in Victoria, Australia. 
During World War II, Justin was training to be a nurse at North Shore Hospital in Sydney. Sometimes after work, she would venture to the Clifton Gardens Hotel for drinks. This is where she met Alfred Boxall, who detectives would later incorrectly identify as the Somerton Man. Alf, I have someone I want you to meet. A rather lovely someone, it seems. Alf, you're embarrassing her. I'm sorry, I've had a few snorts. How do you do? As you've clearly already been told, I'm Alf. Justin. I excuse me? That's my name. It's one of a kind, I'll give you that. My full name is Jesse. My friends call me Joe, or Justin. Does that mean I'm your friend? Not if you don't want to be. To new friends. Here, here. Second meeting. Justin gave Alfred the book that would make him famous. I have something for you. You bought me a gift. We really are friends. Don't make fun. The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Thank you very much. What is it? A book of poetry. I can see that. I mean, what's it about? It's about life and death. It's about living freely without sorrow or regret. You like the poems, I take it? Yes. I find them very meaningful. Indeed, indeed, repentance oft before I swore. But was I sober when I swore? And then and then came spring, and rose in hand, my threadbare penitence a pieces tore. You must think I'm a souse. Oh no, not at all. I'm just teasing you. But why did you write this quatrain out? I suppose it's more about me than you. Meaning what? It's a poem. Interpret it however you'd like. You're a very mysterious woman. Anyone ever tell you that? Yes. You. At the time that Justin met Alfred, he was secretly working for military intelligence. Did Justin know that he was a spy? If Justin was a spy herself, that would have given her motive to befriend Alfred. Alfred Boxall was asked this very question in an interview with Stuart Littlemore for a 1978 ABC documentary on the Somerton Man. Mr. Boxall, you had been working, hadn't you, in an intelligence unit before you met this young woman? Did you talk to her about that at all? No. Was it not done to speak about those things? Well, it was not done to, to speak about any army affair. So she couldn't have known about your involvement with intelligence? Well, unless someone else told her. Because you see what I'm getting at. There are There is a theory, isn't there, about this whole affair that the man on the beach was a spy of some kind. Mm. It's um, <coughs> quite a melodramatic thesis, isn't it? He sounds kind of evasive. It doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility that Justin knew Alfred Boxall's true occupation. In 1946, Justin abruptly quit nursing school and left Sydney before taking her final exam. And the reason given for her leaving? Vomiting. Joe, are you all right? I'm fine. I'm just feeling a bit nauseous. Vomiting in the morning again. Do you think she's... Oh, shh, don't spread gossip. You think one of those men she met at Clifton Gardens? What do I look like, her bosom buddy? She doesn't exactly share secrets with me. That girl doesn't share secrets with anyone. Did Justin quit nursing school due to morning sickness? It seems likely. Then who was the father? Not Alf Boxel. What if Alf Boxel wasn't the only man that Justin gave a copy of the Rubaiyat to over drinks at Clifton Gardens? What if this was where she met the Somerton man? I have something for you, my dear. 
If I had known we were exchanging gifts, I would have brought you flowers. Now I feel inadequate. You being here is gift enough. Now here, take it. The Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. I've heard it's quite good. It's special. It's why I'm giving you my only copy. Then I'll keep it with me always. After quitting nursing school, Justin returned briefly to her childhood home in Mentone, Victoria. In 1947, Justin gave birth to a son, Robin. So was the Somerton man the father of Justin's son, Robin? Well, if the Somerton man was the father, that would have created a rather awkward situation for Justin. You mean because they weren't married? Well, more scandalous than that. After she left Sydney and moved to Melbourne, Justin began dating a car salesman named Prosper Thompson. When Justin gave birth to Robin in 1947, it was presumed that he was Prosper's child. Don't cry. What a handsome little man you are. I don't know about handsome. Look at those funny little ears. Prosper, how can you say that about your own son? Well, he certainly didn't get those ears from me. Where in your family did they come from? I'm not sure. Maybe one of my grandparents. Don't worry about it, darling. I love him regardless. Funny years and all. I just want us to be a proper family. Love, let's not go over this again. You know it takes time. I know. But sometimes it feels as though your divorce from that woman is never going to happen. It will happen. I promise. Mm. We'll be married, and it'll just be the three of us. Or, who knows, maybe soon enough it'll be the four of us. Or the five of us, or the six of us. All right, all right, stop being such a salesman, I believe you. So Justin dated and had a child with a still-married man. That is scandalous. Which may be why Justin did everything she could to obscure the details of her courtship with Prosper from investigators looking for answers about the Somerton man. When the police knocked on Justin's door, she didn't give them her real name. You're telling me you know absolutely nothing about the man on the beach, Mrs. Thompson? No. And you have to promise me that you'll keep my name out of this. My husband wouldn't like all this publicity. Uh, Don't worry, ma'am. We'll protect your family. We just need to make sure you're not forgetting any details that could help us crack this case. I've told you everything I know. Well, Justin's name was not Jessica Thompson at the time she spoke to police. Prosper Thompson had not yet divorced his wife, and she was still legally Jesse Harkness. The pair didn't get married until 1950. They had one other child, a daughter named Kate. Kate would later come to suspect that her mother knew far more about the Somerton man than she had ever told investigators. Justin's own daughter believed her mother was a Soviet spy. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bet get 30, bet get 20, 20, 20, bet get 20, 20, bet get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. 
Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. And now let's continue the story. Before the break, we discovered that Justin's own daughter believed her mother was a Soviet spy. Why a Soviet spy? What if she was a spy for the British or the Americans? For starters, Justin was a communist sympathizer, and she also spoke Russian. Why would an Australian woman know Russian? Justin was very secretive about it. Mom, what's this book with all the funny letters? It's Russian. I'm teaching it to the refugees. Will you teach me Russian? Focus on your own schoolwork. You don't need to know Russian. Then why do you know it? That's mommy's business. So let's just say that Justin was a Soviet spy. Why would she target the Somerton man? The evidence found on the Somerton man's body and in his suitcase abandoned at the train station gives us some clues. Like what? Well, first, there's evidence that Somerton man was a spy himself. The most prominent clue being the mysterious five lines of code found in his copy of the Rubaiyat. Oh, Christ, this is infuriating. No luck. These letters don't correspond to any known codes. I can't figure out the meaning of these spaces in the underlying letters, or the crossed out line. It definitely seems like it's part of the encryption. This has to be a one-time pad. Which means we're never going to solve it without the encryption key. Unfortunately, the top Australian Navy and Army codebreakers were never able to figure out the encryption key to crack the coded message in the Somerton Man's Rubaiyat. Here's a thought. What if it wasn't a coded message at all? What if it was just a random meaningless string of letters? Who writes down random letters in a book? Maybe the Somerton man was trying to solve a crossword puzzle. Or maybe that copy of the Rubaiyat was a one-time pad. Well, what exactly is a one-time pad? It's a code that is mathematically unbreakable without the encryption key. The encryption key is used only once and then destroyed. What makes you so confident? that the Somerton Man's Rubaiyat is a one-time pad. Because to this day, no one has been able to find an identical copy of the Somerton Man's Rubaiyat. That's impossible. No publisher prints just one copy of an edition of a book. Exactly. Yet, detectives were never able to track down another copy of the Somerton Man's Rubaiyat. Well, eventually, Detective Gary Feltus found a similar edition of the book published by Whitcomb and Tomes, a New Zealand chain. It had the same cover, but the formatting wasn't identical. This sounds bizarrely similar to the story behind the copy of the Rubaiyat found on the corpse of Joseph Saul Hyam Marshall. Joseph Marshall? Isn't he the man who committed suicide by drinking poison four years before the Somerton man's body was found on the beach? That's right. Detectives found Joseph Marshall's body sitting on a bench overlooking the water at a park in Sydney. A copy of the Rubaiyat lay across Marshall's chest. He'd underlined verse 23. Ah, make the most of what we yet may spend, before we too into the dust descend. Dust under dust, and under dust to lie, sans wine, sans song, sans singer, and sans end. Detectives found something peculiar about his edition of the Rubaiyat as well. 
Marshall's Rubaiyat was a seventh edition published by Methune in London. Mm, what's so strange about that? The publisher claimed that they had never published more than five editions of the Rubaiyat, just as there are no other copies of the Somerton Man's edition of the Rubaiyat. Maybe because the books connected to these two dead men aren't actual editions of the Rubaiyat printed by publishers. Maybe the Somerton Man's Rubaiyat really was an elaborately created one-time pad. But that still doesn't help us much. No one's been able to crack the Rubaiyat's code in over 60 years. It hasn't stopped people from trying. In 2011, Derek Abbott, a professor at Adelaide University, and his students compared the letters in the Somerton Man's Code to ciphers from World War II. Two of Abbott's students ruled out 20 different kinds of World War II ciphers and won Australia's 2011 Defense Science and Technology Organization Surveillance Systems Undergraduate Prize. Now there's a mouthful. And despite winning that prize, the students still weren't able to crack the code. What if the letters in the code simply stand for the first initials of words? So what would the first line's letters stand for? W-M-R-G-O-A-B-A-B-D? Maybe it's a grocery list. Watermelon, milk, radishes, grapes, oranges, apples, bread, asparagus, beer, and uh, donuts. <laughs> well, that would make for a strange dinner. Detective Feltus proposed that part of the final line of code, I-T-T-M-T-S-A-M-S-T-G-A-B, stood for... It's time to move to South Australia, Mosley Street. Well, Mosley Street was the street that Justin lived on. More evidence for your theory that she really was a spy. Though that doesn't explain what the last three letters G-A-B stood for. Well, recently, former UK detective Gordon Kramer came up with a new hypothesis on the Somerton Man's code. Did he figure out what the letters mean? No, but he noticed that parts of the code match Morse code letters from the World War II radio operator's manual. And when he looked deeper, he found another intriguing mystery. Hidden inside the letters was a form of microwriting. A code within a code. That's right. The microwriting looked like tiny, faint letters and numbers written within the larger string of letters. Kramer thinks that some of the microwriting refers to the de Havilland Venom, a British aircraft that was in development in 1948. Reporting on the development of government aircraft would make sense if Somerton Man was a spy. Well, there's more. Kramer didn't just find microwriting in the Somerton Man's Rubaiyat. He also found microwriting hidden in Justin's signature in the copy of the Rubaiyat that she gave to Alf Boxall. Does this microwriting mean that Justin, the Somerton Man, and Alfred Boxall were all entangled in some sort of international espionage? What was Boxall's role? Remember that witness who saw a man carrying another man over his shoulders near where the Somerton man's body was found on the beach? Well, what if Boxel was working with Justin? What if he helped her dispose of the body? Okay, let's assume that the Somerton man and Justin really were both spies. I'm still not sure why Justin would need to kill him. Well, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union's greatest enemy was the United States. And there is quite a bit of evidence that the Somerton Man was American. Oh, the American Juicy Fruit Gum, the American Comb, the American Feather Stitched Jacket. Even that orange thread used to sew up the Somerton Man's pocket that wasn't available in Australia. If Justin and the Somerton Man were spies on opposite sides of the Cold War, and the Somerton man figured out that Justin was a double agent, then maybe Justin poisoned him to keep her secrets from being discovered. 
If that's true, then I doubt that the Somerton man was really Robin's father. What makes you so sure? Well, first of all, how could Justin kill the father of her own child? Well, if it was a choice between poisoning the Somerton man or being executed for treason and leaving her child motherless, you don't think that Justin would have chosen to save herself? Hmm. What makes you so confident that Justin left her son fatherless? The simplest explanation of Robin's parentage is that Prosper Thompson was Robin's father. Oh, but Justin left nursing school due to vomiting before she met Prosper Thompson. Well, it seems to me like she was pregnant before they started dating. Even so, that's not enough proof to convince me that the Somerton man was Robin's father. The answer is in the Somerton man's ears. His ears? You've got to be joking. Nope, not at all. You may remember that Paul Francis Lawson made a mold of the Somerton man's head, as well as a separate mold of his ears, before the unknown man was buried. That's right. As a way of preserving evidence since police were burying the body. I wonder why they made a separate mold of his ears. Well, the Somerton man's ears were very distinctive. The hollow cavity in each of the Somerton man's upper ears, known as the Simba, was unusually large and deep. That doesn't sound like proof of fatherhood to me. Well, actually, the Somerton man's enlarged ear cavities were due to a rare genetically inherited trait. And what's more, Justin's son, Robin, had those exact same enlarged hollows in his ears. Well, you can see proof of this in pictures taken of the Somerton man's corpse and the molds of his ears, as well as in pictures taken of Robin. Maybe it's coincidence. That would be some coincidence. This is a trait shared with only 1% of the population. So you think that Robin inherited his unusual ears from the Somerton man? Not just his ears. Robin also shared another interesting physical trait with the Somerton man. His eye color? His teeth. Hmm. The Somerton man's upper teeth were rather unusual. He had no lateral incisors, and his canines sat directly next to his two front teeth. When he smiled, it would look like he had no gap between his teeth. All I want for Christmas is my two lateral incisors. Just doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? Unfortunately, no. So I'm guessing that Robin was also missing his two lateral incisors. Yeah, that's right. And I'm guessing this is also a rare hereditary trait. Exactly. And there was one more thing that the two men had in common. When the coroner examined the Somerton man, he noticed that he had very muscular legs and unusually developed calf muscles. Maybe he was a dancer. Well, the coroner thought this might be the case. Detectives checked lists of missing Australian dancers, but they were unable to identify the Somerton man. How do the Somerton man's calves help show us that he was Robin's father? Well, as it turns out, a dancer's physique seems to run in the family. Like the Somerton man, Robin had powerful calves, which he put to good use as a dancer in the Australian ballet. Among other roles, he played the rising sun in Fool on the Hill, a ballet inspired by the Beatles song. Beatles aside, if the Somerton man and Robin shared all of these unusual physical traits, that lends to credence to your theory that the Somerton man was Robin's father. But this makes it even harder for me to understand Justin's motives for killing the Somerton man. If Justin was a Soviet spy, why would she have a child with an American operative? Especially if she already knew that he was an American spy when she met him. Well, maybe one of them purposely entered the relationship to keep tabs on the other. Who better to spy on than your own lover? 
That's a lot of commitment to an undercover role to have a child with another spy, let alone kill your child's father. Well, let's look at this from another angle. What if neither Justin nor the Summerton man were spies? You think maybe the Summerton man was nothing more than a jilted lover? What if Justin hid her relationship with the Summerton man from Prosper Thompson? What if the Summerton man threatened to reveal to Prosper that Robin wasn't really his son? Hmm. Maybe Justin needed the Summerton man out of the way to protect her impending marriage to Prosper Thompson. We met in the springtime when blossoms unfold. The pastures were green and the meadows were gold. Our love was in flower as summer grew on. Her love lacked the leaves now have withered and gone. We can't keep doing this. This has to stop. Joe, please. I love you. I've made my choice. You want to give up everything we have to be with a married car salesman? Better a car salesman than a sailor who's always halfway around the world. I thought that's what you liked about me. That I've traveled around the world. And someday I'm going to take you and Robin with me. I want someone who's here for me, and that man's Prosper, not you. You need to stop coming here. You can't stop me from seeing my own son. He's Prosper's son. Oh, is he now? Because I think we both know otherwise. Prosper believes he's the father, and that's how I want things to stay. Then maybe I'll tell him the truth. You wouldn't dare. I'm not going to let Robin grow up believing some other man is his father. You claim to love me, yet you want to destroy my marriage? You aren't even married yet. And who says Prosper will mind? After all, you are willing to have an affair with a married man, so he already knows you're a woman of loose morals. I'm warning you. I'm not going to let you tear Prosper and me apart. You need to disappear from my life. Sorry, darling. Unless you're a magician, you can't make me disappear. We'll see about that. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. At Sephora, we know how you love to use makeup, skincare, hair care, and fragrances that work for you, but also how important it is to be in the know about the ingredients that are in them, which is why we created Clean at Sephora. Curated products from brands like Merit, Amica, Summer Fridays, and Fleur that have everything you want, minus certain ingredients you might not. Clean at Sephora is only at Sephora. Shop now at Sephora.com. And now, back to our story. Maybe Justin and the Summerton men were simply involved in a love triangle gone wrong. Love is one of the most common reasons for murder. I still think Justin was a spy. Because it's more dramatic? Because if Justin was just an ordinary housewife, how did she have knowledge of rare poisons like digitalis and strophanthin? Well, don't forget that Justin trained as a nurse, and both of those poisons are used in medications to treat heart disease. Whether she was a spy or not, Justin's medical background would have provided her with ample knowledge of how to administer a fatal dose. Did Justin ever confess to her daughter that she poisoned the Summerton man? Unfortunately, Justin died in May of 2007, taking her secrets to the grave. 
So we'll never know for sure if she had a hand in the Somerton man's death. Which means we need to consider other suspects. What about the Magnuson case? That's an intriguing possibility. Keith Magnuson was one of the many people who attempted to identify the body of the Somerton man. He believed that the Somerton man was Carl Thompson, a man he had worked with in Southern Australia in 1939. The Somerton man wasn't Carl Thompson, but Keith Magnuson was apparently so upset after seeing the Somerton man's body that his wife reported that Keith couldn't even drink his tea. A bit suspicious that Keith would be that bothered by seeing the body of a man he didn't know. Even more suspicious is what happened after Keith Magnuson tried to identify the Somerton man. His wife, Roma Magnuson, noticed a man spying on the family in the house she shared with her husband and mother. Mother, he's still there. Who? Another reporter? No, it's that same man who was loitering outside our house the other night. I think he's watching us. Probably just another rubbernecker. What if he's here because Keith tried to identify that man on Somerton Beach? You've been through a lot these past few days. You're jumping at shadows. I swear, that man is stalking me, Mother. You're imagining things. What if it's the unknown man's killer? But Roma Magnuson wasn't imagining things. On June 21st, 1949, Roma was walking down the street when a battered white car tried to run her over. Keep away from the police, or else. I won't say anything, I, I swear. You better not. Roma was terrified, but she couldn't ID the man who had threatened her. The driver of the cream-colored car wore a handkerchief over his face, so she couldn't see who he was. She wasn't the only one being threatened. Both J.M. Gower, secretary of the large North Progress Association, and A.H. Curtis, the mayor of Port Adelaide, received threats from an anonymous caller. Hello? You better stay away from the Magnuson case if you know what's good for you. You again? Who is this? Why do you keep calling me? Me? I'm worried about your health. Because sticking your nose into the Magnuson case might result in you having an accident. And you wouldn't want that, would you? I'm calling the police. Do you think this anonymous caller was the same man who stalked Roma Magnuson? It's possible. Well, maybe Roma Magnuson was right. Maybe the Somerton man's killer was retaliating against her family to keep them from identifying him. Well, I'm not so sure about that. After all, none of the other people who tried to identify the Somerton man were threatened by a masked man. Why else would someone go after the Magnusons? There was another reason why the general public knew about the Magnuson family, and it involved another tragic tale of death and poison. Another poisoning? Well, that sounds suspicious. In early June, Keith Magnuson told Roma that he was taking his almost two-year-old son Clive with him to get firewood from a merchant on Military Road. When he did not return, Roma went to the merchant to find the pair only to be informed that her husband hadn't been by to see the merchant that morning. Roma became worried that her husband had wandered off with Clive and reported them both missing at the Semaphore police station. Why was Roma so worried about her husband wandering off? She didn't trust him? Keith had a history of mental illness. It was first apparent in his mid-twenties when he was working on a farm in the countryside and either got lost or he wandered off. He was found unconscious several days later in an empty horse trough. What was wrong with him? Well, the doctors weren't sure. 
Keith spent weeks recovering at Loxon Public Hospital before being transferred to Royal Adelaide Hospital and then a convalescent hospital. After Keith failed to respond to treatment, he then spent several months at Enfield Receiving Home, a hospital specializing in the short-term treatment of the mentally ill. Well, after three months, Keith seemingly recovered from whatever ailed him, and his mother was able to take him home. During World War II, Keith enlisted in the Australian Imperial Forces and served in the Middle East and the Pacific. A war can't have been easy on someone who already suffered from mental illness. It wasn't. While Keith was serving, he contracted malaria and began to suffer from what doctors call war neurosis. War neurosis was the 1940s term for post-traumatic stress disorder. And back then, doctors had no idea how to treat PTSD. Since Keith couldn't get proper treatment, he continued to suffer from bouts of post-traumatic stress disorder after returning home from the war. Which may explain why he was so overwhelmed after viewing the Somerton man's body. True. After returning to Australia in 1945, Keith met and married his wife, Roma, who was only 15 years old. 15? Well, that is awfully young to get married, let alone to shoulder the burden of marriage to a man suffering from serious mental illness. Roma claimed the pair were happily married, but tragedy still followed them. In June of 1948, a fire destroyed their home. No! Oh, God, no! Calm down, Keith. It's all gone! Look at the bright side. No one was hurt. None of this is covered by insurance. What am I going to do? We can rebuild. I'm still here. Clive's still here. We'll be all right. No, we won't. We have our family. That's what really matters. I suppose you're right. The fire severely affected Keith's fragile mental health. Not long after the fire, he disappeared from home with 20 pounds and the plans for the new house the couple was preparing to build on a plot of land they'd purchased through the repatriation department. Keith! My God! Four days, Keith! Four days you've been missing! I was so worried! I, I'm, uh, uh, sorry. Are you alright? Where have you been? I don't... I, 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 I don't know. Please, Keith, talk to me. Where's the money you took? And the plans for the new house, what did you do with them? Mm, I don't... I don't... What happened? So, it seems like Keith Magnuson had a history of disappearing and going into a fugue state, forgetting where he was and what he was doing. That must have been a lot for Roma to handle at such a young age. Poor Roma wasn't even out of her teens when Keith disappeared with their two-year-old son Clive in the summer of 1949. She was horrified to discover that Keith had also taken her mother's bottle of phenobarbital tablets, a dangerous medication used to treat epilepsy. A search party quickly formed to look for the father and son. A neighbor found Keith four days later, sitting amongst a pile of sacks and densely growing boxthorn bushes, staring vacantly out at the sea. What about Keith's son, Clive? Did they find him? I'm afraid they did. Keith Magnuson? Words, I, I, it's, wait, I, I didn't, I, 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 I saw, I, 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 there's in, 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 in. I'm Sergeant Ridley of the Port Adelaide Police Department. How do you feel, Keith? 
I, 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 well. Where's Clive? I don't know. I, I, some, I was, I, um, I, I, I. Where's your son? I, I am looking, like, I, some, something I found, found around, or in some, I. Help him up? Yes, sir. What's in that sack next to him? Open it up. Oh, Jesus. Police found Clive Magnuson's body in a fertilizer bag. Dr. Dwyer, the same coroner who examined the Somerton man, believed that Clive might have died from barbiturate poisoning. Where did the poison come from? Near the boy's corpse, detectives found the bottle of phenobarbital tablets that Keith had taken from his mother-in-law, but the bottle was empty. An overdose of those pills would cause barbiturate poisoning. Did Keith poison his son? Or did Clive get his hands on the bottle of pills because his father wasn't in a proper mental state to watch him? It's unclear. To make matters more confusing, Professor Cleland, the man who found the words Tamam Shud in the Somerton man's pocket, also wrote Clive Magnuson's warrant to Barry. Cleland determined that Clive's cause of death wasn't due to barbiturate poisoning at all, but to exposure. Whether Clive died from barbiturate poisoning or exposure, it sounds like Keith Magnuson wasn't in his right mind and didn't intentionally kill his son. The detectives agreed. They were unable to interview Keith and had him sent to the Parkside Mental Hospital. So Roma Magnuson had been in the news because of her toddler's death when she was targeted by that masked man. Clive's tragic death may have made her the recipient of a cruel prank rather than the target of the Somerton man's killer. I agree. It doesn't seem like there's a strong connection between Clive Magnuson's death and the Somerton man's murder. If Keith Magnuson wasn't involved in the Somerton man's death and Justin died without revealing her secrets, how are we ever going to figure out the Somerton man's identity? Well, there's one avenue that still hasn't been explored. Remember our theory that Robin Thompson was the Somerton man's son? Do you think he knows something that could help us with the case? Well, unfortunately, Robin died in 2009. A literal dead end. Not entirely. As it turns out, Robin had a daughter with one of his fellow dancers in the Australian ballet. His daughter's name was Rachel Egan. So Rachel Egan might be the Somerton man's granddaughter? Believe it or not, Rachel had no idea of the connection between her father Robin and the Somerton man until she was interviewed by Professor Abbott. The professor who tried to crack the Somerton man's Rubaiyat code with his students. That's right. Professor Abbott has devoted years to solving the case of the Somerton man. And his search for the Somerton man's real identity led him to Rachel Egan. He hopes to convince the Australian government to exhume the Somerton man's body so he can compare the Somerton man's DNA with Rachel's. Then we'll finally know the truth. Well, maybe not. So far, the Australian government has refused Abbott's requests. And pretty soon, the Somerton man will finally decompose to a point where a DNA test would be useless. That's a disappointing ending. Mm, not entirely. Uh, you see, Professor Abbott may have sought out Rachel Egan in an attempt to solve a murder mystery, but instead he found himself swept up in the mystery of love. Abbott and Egan married and started a family together. <laughs> so a man trying to uncover the Somerton man's identity on the theory that the Somerton man fell in love and fathered a child with Justin ended up falling in love and fathering children with the Somerton man's granddaughter. It's definitely ironic, but at least there's a happy ending. Not for the Somerton man. Who was he? And who murdered him? I think the Somerton man was an American spy. Justin killed him because he found out she was spying for the Soviet Union. I think Justin was hiding a more mundane secret. 
The Somerton man was her child's real father, and Justin didn't want him breaking apart her new family. But you agree Justin was the most likely culprit. I do. But since Justin has never confessed, we will likely never know for certain if she murdered the Somerton man or what her motives were. We may also never find out why those two final words, Tamam should, were ripped from the Rubiot and hidden inside the Somerton man's pocket. For this mystery, there is no writing, Tamam should. There may be no true end, but the words of the Rubiot are nevertheless a fitting tribute to the mystery of the Somerton man. The sphere upon which mortals come and go has no end, nor beginning that we know. And none there is to tell us in plain truth, whence do we come and whither do we go? Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday, we'll investigate a new unsolved murder. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. If we live till next time, Tamam should. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Jay Silvers, with production assistance by Maggie Admire. Unsolved Murders is written by Jeanette Manning and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Kimberly Holland, Mick Lambeth, Janice Liebhart, Michael Malconian, and Nicholas Massoud.